You're listening to the Various and Sundry Things podcast, the Vast podcast. I am your host, Donna Gay Tyler. Hey, y'all. Happy January. Happy 2023. The last time we spoke was last year. So happy new year to you. Hope all is well with you and yours. I'm glad to be back behind the microphone. If I was a pastor, I would say behind the sacred desk or preacher. Not just pastors say that, but preachers do too. But I am happy to be back behind the microphone and having a reasonable portion of my health and strength. All my churchy listeners, you you get those references, right? I got sick um, right before winter break. It was terrible. It was terrible. Right before my winter break, um, I felt it coming on that last day um, of school. It was so, so odd. And I was like, come on. Because a lot of people, a lot of students, a lot of staff members have been going down with a variety of illnesses. Um, and I tested for COVID. And, um, I take had, had taken a COVID test. Let me say not say I tested for COVID, but I had taken a COVID test. I knew it wasn't COVID. I actually took two COVID tests. Um, saw a doctor. It's like, it's probably just something viral. You know, drink plenty of fluids. Get your humidifier out. That'll help you sleep well at night. But I developed a terrible cough. Um, it was pretty pretty rough the first maybe week or so. And then it started to subside, but I would still cough um, rather terribly at night. And I was taking all kinds of medicines and whatnot to treat it. Never really developed a fever or anything like that, but it just would not go away. So the two weeks passed, Christmas came, New Year's came, the new year came. People hate when they say New Year's. New Year came, still had the little cough, had the tickle in the back of my throat, not 100% um, voice um, especially, especially when I went back to work that, um, first day back, the kids are like, Oh, you sound terrible. It's like, thank you. <laughs> Happy new year to you too. I hate you. Um, but yeah, um, I was like really, really hoarse. Um, and you know, it wasn't from teaching because I had been at home for two weeks. It wasn't, you know, like teaching and talking all day to, you know, a variety of classes. Um, and I just couldn't shake the cough. And so one week, two weeks, three weeks into the fourth week. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'm over this. So finally went to a doctor again, um, got some antibiotics, gave me a different type of cough medicine. And, um, that finally knocked it out. And my voice is kind of, sort of almost at a hundred percent. Um, and I say that because, um, like I said, I'm glad to be back behind the microphone, but I just didn't want to record because it sounded so scratchy. Um, and I'm sure some people don't mind that. Um, but you know how you, you know, like when you have to listen to yourself, when I'm recording the podcast, podcast, when I listen to it to edit it, I have to listen to myself. And that's like one of my dreaded things. Like, oh my God, I hate that. I hate the sound of my own voice. I don't know why that is. I think we just are, we are our own worst critics. And so it's kind of difficult to hear yourself because you hear all the little nuances and speech patterns and things like that, that, you know, others may find annoying, but you know, like really great on your nerves, like, oh my God. And so I didn't want to listen to my voice all scratchy and um, raspy. Although I know I have a little bit of a natural rasp. It was just, it was just bad. Trust me. It was pretty bad. And like I said, my voice is almost at a hundred percent, but it's kind of hard to rest it um, because I talk for a living. I'm a teacher, you know, I teach middle school. So I teach multiple classes a day. And at various and sundry times, I have to use um, <laughs> different volume levels uh, with my students. Not, you know, um, not necessarily in the classroom yelling. That's not what I'm trying to um, hit at that I'm always yelling at kids in the classroom. But sometimes in the hallways to get people's attention, get students' attention. Um, I did. I have raised my voice twice um, to get uh, students' attention in the hallway. But anyway, I'm back. Jackie's back. Okay, I'm not Jackie, but I'm Donna. Anyway, here we are, Monday. Uh, January 16th, 2023. It is MLK Day here in the United States of America. We are celebrating the life, the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King. I saw one of the daughters. Is it just one daughter that's left? I think it's Bernice. Um, had posted on social media. Don't you know? forget about the mom, about her mother, Coretta Scott King, because she was the architect um, of the King Center and, you know, crafting his legacy in um, after Dr. King was assassinated. And it is largely because of her efforts and, of course, the efforts of others, but it's because of her push, big, big push, that we actually have an MLK holiday. As you're probably well aware, his actual birthday is the 15th and the holiday, um, as it is in the United States with a lot of these uh, Monday holidays, is uh, celebrated on the second uh, Monday in January. I'll talk a little bit more about um, Dr. King towards the end of the episode, 
um, you know, I'm a former social studies teacher and just a black person. You know, we just that's how that's what we do, you know. <laughs> Black church folk, you know, we had our MLK fans, you know, in the church, we would be fanning in the summertime. It's hot. Everybody had that Martin Luther King Jr. fan in the church. Um, and if your parents are old enough, they may have even had a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. on the wall, you know, like along with the other members of the family. Maybe he was on that reverential wall, you know, or some of the, you know, other folk that we kind of laud in history. You know, Black people did. They, that's what they did. They put pictures up of folks like that. Not that white people don't do that, but I, I you know, I'm not. I didn't grow up in a white household. I grew up in a black household and visited other black households. So that's what I seeked. <laughs> that's what I saw. Um, and and whoop, there it is. I want to start off by talking, um, discussing a, a rather sad story. And I don't know if I was necessarily shocked at this because this is America, but it, it was a little surprising. I, you know, I was like, what? I'm sure you heard too. Um, on uh, January 6th, there was a teacher in um, Newport News, Virginia, that was shot by her six-year-old student. You know, like I said, I when I first heard the story, I wasn't shocked, but I was surprised. Like, dang, we... Oh. It says so much about us as a country. It really does. You know, the accessibility to um, handguns and weapons. Um, it's it's a sad and tragic story. Thankfully, the teacher um, survived. Um, I, her name was, or is rather, Abigail... Zwerna, I think I'm pronouncing, I know I'm going to mispronounce her name and I'm so sorry. Um, and she's only 26 years old, I think is what I saw on uh, NBC News, a couple of um, websites um, that were reporting this, AP News also. Um, she is survive. She did survive and she is recovering. I read that the bullet like went through her hand and into the upper part of her chest. And initially um, her injuries uh, were considered um, life-threatening. Um, they weren't, I guess, really sure if she was going to make it, but she um, has been downgraded to stable. Um, so thank God for that. Um, yeah, The way that the story played out um, or the story is developing and all the things that I've read about it, and again, I think you've probably read also, it's just such a weird situation. Apparently, um, this six-year-old kid was late to school and some personnel or somebody um, was tipped off to the fact that he may be, it was a male student, maybe in possession of a weapon. And so um, his book bag was allegedly searched. Um, that piece of information came out at a um, parents only online meeting with the school's um, superintendent. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a public forum, but you know how that goes, you know, everybody's going to find out. And so, yeah, like I said, his book, his backpack was searched, but this nine millimeter gun that he used to shoot the teacher later on was not found. Um, and I guess the kid, well, not I guess, the kid was sent to class. And at some point, um, he took out a gun and shot his teacher. So apparently before the kid took the gun out and shot his teacher, there was no altercation is what I read online. Um, no argument or anything like that. Of course, um, I'm sure the investigation is ongoing and it just happened on January 6th. And um, some more details are probably going to come out, especially once the teacher talks. Um but yeah, it wasn't any buildup to it, um, kid. You know, like in that moment, I suppose. Um, I remember having a conversation just recently, of course, with one of my own colleagues. And I was like, what in the world could have prompted a six-year-old to shoot their teacher? Like, I just, I mm, I don't know. Um, when I think of six-year-olds, I think of kindergartners. You know, I um, have a daughter in that age range. She just turned six, as a matter of fact, last year. And, um, and like, you know, and I know everybody's situation is different. Every teaching situation is different. Every child's, um, you know, schooling experience, you know, has its own. Of course, you know, we hurt them all in classes by age and, you know, they go through the ranks, you know, you know, by age with their peers, um, same age peers. And so there's a lot of similarities there. But, you know, two kids sitting in the same classroom, even sitting right next to each other can have totally different experiences. Right. Their educational um, outcomes, you know, largely impacted by, you know, a lot of um, factors, a lot of elements go into it. And so I'm not necessarily trying to, um, I'm not at all trying to excuse this kid. What I am, you know, really, you know, just kind of grasping at straws here, trying to understand how in the world did, did this situation like just play out like this? There's so many things wrong here, so many things wrong. And I saw that term, there's a lot to unpack. First of all, I hate that term. They've been using that for forever. And I realize it's pretty accurate. Um, you know, when um, the standards kept changing um, a couple of years ago, um, you know, uh, state standards were changing. And so we would be in these PDs, professional developments, for those of you who 
um, don't know all those school acronyms, um, initials and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they're like, we're going to unpack the standards. And I promise, I was like, I'm ready to trip the next person that walks by me talking about we're going to unpack the standards. And I hated that they used that word here in this instance, because clearly they did not unpack this. And I'm not trying to be uh crass, but they did not unpack this little boy's book bag and find that gun. A nine millimeter is not a teeny tiny toy gun. Like really? It's yeah, how? Anyway, you know, like I said, that's a, it's a very sad situation. And like I said, I was talking to my colleague and you know, we were like, how what in the world could a teacher have done to a six-year-old that made them feel that level of anger? Um, you know, to come to school with a gun, which apparently was um procured um, legally by the child's mother. Um, it's what I read. Um, it's a misdemeanor to have a gun, a loaded gun accessible to someone under the age of 14 in Virginia. But I mean, this this kid almost killed this teacher. I mean, you know, one shot was fired. No other um, people were targeted. And um, I, I saw the word intentional in a couple of press releases too, that this was an intentional shooting. It was not accidental. Um, I remember seeing a parent on TV angry, I, you know, Rightfully so, you know, why did this happen and what's going on? And I hate that my children, um, that's what the parent was saying, was, you know, witness this. And I agree. I hate that her kid witnessed that. And also hate that for teachers. You know, that's the other thing that, of course, as a teacher and as a parent, you know, I'm, I, I, I feel both of those, um, both of those sides. Like, you know, what? I, I don't even know how to respond to something like that. Um, you know, even with um, students, you know, of my own. Because, um, of course, they're aware of it. They've heard of this story. And they're like, man, you know, Ms. Gay Tyler, what's up with that? I'm like, hey, listen, if y'all got some anger issues, y'all mad at me, let me know. Let's talk it out. Okay. <laughs> it's like, if I did something to you, if I said something to you that you do not like, I gave you a grade that you do not like, or you earned a grade that you did not like, um, let's have a conversation about it first. Um, I'm going to let someone know that you're having some issues, that you're a little bit angry with your teacher. And even if, even if you like, can't talk to me, talk to a parent, counselor, someone, please, pretty please with sugar on top. I think back in the day, I used to take that a little bit more lightly, you know, like, you know, like, okay, kids, you know, be careful, that, mindful of the things that you bring to school. But like, it's, it's a totally different day, a totally different day when a six-year-old literally brings this gun, a gun to school to shoot their teacher. Yikes. Um, we're going to make a hard right right here uh, and turn to a little bit more um, upbeat news. Um, your girl and my girl, I love her. I love Tabitha Brown. Um, I, I just like everything about her. She is so cool. Um, my daughter's a fan too. She watches uh, Tab Time on YouTube. It's so cute. Um, and so wholesome too, like in holistic. I love it. I love it. I love it. Anyway, Tabitha Brown has a new line of food and kitchen products at your favorite store and mine. Was it just mine? I don't care. I love Target. I love Target too. So it's having the brown and Target, two of my favorite things. One stop shopping. Oh yeah. Um, like I said, new line of food and kitchen products. Um, she's got tableware. I saw lunch bags, a lot of vegan comma plant-based um, like patties. And um, I saw some like sausages or something like that. She likes pickled things. So I saw pickled okra, not my speed, but that's okay. Um, I had some of the popcorn though. I bought a bag of the um, I forgot what kind of popcorn it was. I bought that popcorn and I had put online, it was so funny, some other type of popcorn that I was that I've been eating too recently, but it's not Tab with the Brown popcorn. But the bag of Tab with the Brown popcorn, I almost finished that before <laughs> we got home, before I got home. And I was trying to share it. And I was like, yeah, it is half gone. I'm so sorry. Um, she had some some like sauces and dips and things like that. I saw some um pasta. I didn't even get a chance to um, like uh, investigate. I was like running in and out of Target the last time that I went, the last time that I went. And then I'd seen um, other people posting about how they were sold out in a, a variety of Targets actually all over the United States, which is cool. Tabitha Brown stays winning. She stays true to her um, brand. Um, you know, she's uh, vegan, holistic, um, very kind, warm. Um, I listened to an interview with her and Kirk Franklin on his podcast. I think it's called Good Words or Good Word is the name of his podcast. And it was an interview he'd done with her um, sometime last year. And, you know, she talked about her story, which I had heard about. And I haven't bought her book yet, but I had heard um, bits and pieces of her, you know, story about how she was trying to make it in Hollywood, um, had kind of, um, you know, was repackaging, had repackaged herself with the straight hair, losing that Southern accent and things like that. Um, because she was told, you know, that's what, that's what you needed to do, you know? And if, of course, you know, if you look at Hollywood, you know, over the years, 
for um, African American actresses. You know, it wasn't a whole. It wasn't all about you know being you know, uh, having natural hair and things like that. You know, she wears an Afro. Um, she's been switching it up recently, but um, she's, cause she's got a hair care line too now. Um, Donna's, I would just, isn't that cute, right? It's Donna's. Um, she started out with some hair oil and some other things. And now I've seen like a whole um, line of a shampoo, conditioner and some other type of hair product too. She calls her Afro, her hair. She calls her hair Donna, which I think is really cool um, for obvious reasons. And uh, yeah, she is definitely winning. So about maybe, what was this, about two weeks ago? Um, yeah, that uh, that I was first looking into this uh, Tabitha Brown story, the way that I was going to um, present it was Tabitha Brown is winning and Kevin McCarthy is losing. Now, you know, as you all know, um, eventually he did win. Um, he became the Speaker of the House um, after being elected on the 15th ballot. Yikes. Um According to CBS News, that's the most uh, since uh, before the Civil War. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should stop laughing so much. The most since before the Civil War. Um, according to the House of Representatives, there have been 127 speaker elections since 1789. In the modern era, a nominee needs a majority of the House members voting. 218 if all 435 are present to become speaker. Members of Congress cannot be sworn in until there's a speaker. And so, you know, that was part of the, the brouhaha that was going on prior to the vote. 14 speaker elections required, um, prior to McCarthy's um, vote, 14 speaker elections required multiple ballots with 13 of those occurring before the Civil War. The only time in the post-Civil War era that it um, that this type of thing had occurred was in 1923 when it took nine tries. Correct. Ray Z. And um, as you probably also know, the big holdup was that, um, you know, like ultra, um, is it bad to call them ultra wacky? The ultra wacky um, wing of the Republican Party, um, they had, you know, it seemed that their purpose was just chaos. It wasn't, you know, they didn't really have an end game by holding up the speaker's vote, you know, by um, refusing to um, vote for McCarthy. And um, I'm not exactly sure what concessions he um, ended up giving into um, in order to become, to win their vote, to become the Speaker of the House. But um, it's probably, I don't know, it's it's probably going to be something rather weird. Um, and uh, yeah, like initially when I was um, following this, um, a couple of them were being interviewed and they were like, yeah, there's nothing he can give us. There's nothing, you know, he could possibly give us. So I'm thinking, what did he give up in order to um, become the Speaker of the House in order to gain their vote, but a hey, that's y'all Republicans. They're a little bit nutty, um, nuttier than I've seen um, in politics in my in my day. Nuttier than I've seen. Um, yeah, so that this is going to be an interesting um, Congress to watch. Um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting Congress to watch. And the last um, or penultimate uh, topic I wanted to talk, talk about was um, this. Uh, it, it this. It was the selling or acquisition is how I've been seeing it framed of, um, I think it's pronounced Myel Organics um, by Procter & Gamble. So for those of you who might be a little bit unfamiliar, um, Myel um, Organics is a hair care company owned by um, two African-American, uh, a couple, man and woman, Monique and Melvin Rodriguez. Um, I forgot when they first started, but like a lot of black hair care companies, um, you know, they got kind of buzzworthy and um, started expanding. Um, I started following them on social media. Um, I haven't been a big user of their products, especially since I've locked my hair. But um, when I was just wearing my hair naturally um, and kind of an Afro, like um, Tabitha Brown, I was always on the hunt for the next best, I was next best product too. I'm kind of a, a bit of a product junkie. And now I'm a little bit of a product junkie when it comes to my daughter's hair too, but I'm trying to cut back. One of the things that I did use for a little while was their rosemary growth hair oil. And this is the thing that kind of like um, made made a lot of news or a lot of waves, at least on social media. So apparently some white TikTok um, user with um, a big, um, you know, a large number of followers was raving about the Miel or Myel rosemary um, growth hair oil. She was oiling her scalp. Now, in and of itself, it, does, it seems rather innocuous, right? Right. But... I, I, I get it because for black women, that's something that we do tend to do. We oil our scalp um, a lot. 
um, you know, to combat dryness and things like that. Even when you have natural hair, even if it's uncolored, um, not colored, um, you, a lot of black women, you know, it's a old tradition. Like that's what I remember sitting down and my mom doing my hair and parting my scalp and putting whatever she, whatever she was putting in my scalp. Some, it was hair grease back in the day when I was a kid, it was hair grease, wasn't necessarily hair oil. Now, of course, a lot of, um, you know, hair care, black hair care companies have come up with different products, hair oil products and things like that, that are more um, suited for um, natural black hair. And um, more so now than it was in the past, which is, you know, a great thing. I've talked about this on a number of occasions too with friends about how when I was little, there wasn't this, you know, plethora of hair care products for black women. There was, it was very limited. And a lot of times, especially if you wore your hair naturally, meaning, you know, it wasn't relaxed. If you wore your hair naturally, it was like hardly anything out there um, besides, you know, like homemade coconut oil or, you know, shea butter, I suppose. But, you know, that, you know, tends to leave your hair kind of greasy and things like that. I mean, there were some products on the market, but I don't know if that they were necessarily um, healthy for the hair at the time. Because there are a lot of, you know, petroleum based products that, you know, like weigh your hair down and aren't necessarily good for your scalp either. But that's what we had and that's what we use. So not knocking you know, prior generations, but you've had a lot of, um, there's a lot of black hair care companies, or at least, um, which is where I'm going with this particular uh, segment. There were, there are a lot of products being marketed to black women and with regard to their hair. So uh, Myel Organics um, was recently acquired by Procter & Gamble. Um, the husband and wife will continue to operate the company as an independent subsidiary of um, Procter and Gamble, and man, has that erupted? Wait, I, 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 I got, di I digressed already. Dang it, already. <laughs> so back to the white TikToker. I can't remember her name, but it was, I think it was more than one that was kind of extolling the virtues of, you know, oiling her scalp. How she was saying, I guess this was the best part of her day. And so this brought up this conversation about should, um, you know, black people like, you know, be gatekeepers in terms of, you know, their hair care products because they were concerned that you know once um, white women found out about it then it would be sold out and perhaps um, the formulas would change and the marketing would change and I think there's an argument to be made for that um, not necessarily saying that black women need to be gatekeepers but I think the basis of that you know the reasons why that there, there's some validity to that um, you know, white uh, black women were reporting, you know, just a anecdotal anecdotally that, you know, they'd seen um, the product sell out, but, um, you know, in a couple of spaces, like, cause it's sold at Target and CVS and places like that. You don't like have to always, um, you can buy it more than just online. A lot of black hair care companies, as a matter of fact, that's how they really started out, um, by selling their products, um, online. I'm talking about Carol's daughter. I used to be a real big fan of Carol's daughter, but anyway, before I digress again. Um, and so that brought up, like I said, that uh, conversation that was being, um, you know, batted back and forth, um, discussed online. And, um, and so some people were like, yeah, cause this is what happens. You know what I just said, you know, the products are selling out people, um, the company changes their marketing formula. And here's the thing, because products that are made for um, African-American um, women's like uh, more curlier textures um, don't necessarily suit um, white women who have straight hair textures um, and whose scalp, you know, tends to naturally produce um, hair oils, which is why, you know, white white women, white girls, um, you know, wash their hair so often. And black girls don't have to wash their hair um, as often because our, our scalps um, don't naturally produce, you know, that much hair oil. So anyway, um, I saw that um, kick off online. A lot of folks were mad and they were like, watch, you know, my old organics is going to sell out. Okay. So I don't know if this acquisition and them staying on as, um, you know, operating the their company as an independent subsidiary. I don't know if that's necessarily pegs them in the sellout category. And it probably could. It's just the way that it's being worded <laughs> um, to keep it from sounding like it's a, you know, total uh, sellout situation. But um, like I said, I, I hear both sides of the argument. Um, the other side, of course, being, you know, Black people are getting their money, you know, don't stand in the way of these folk, you know, uh, getting your bag as the, as the saying goes, um, you know, if they're making their money and it's, you know, branching off and, you know, doing other kinds of things, um, you know, and establishing generational wealth for their families, you know, isn't that what we want black people to be able to do something that, you know, we hadn't been able to do for years and years and years in this country due to all kinds of levels of racism and things like that, um, in a variety of markets. Right. Right. So there's that uh, side of the argument. Of course, the other side, 
which again, I also, you know, I, I see as a fair um, argument here is that once these um, companies do sell out, a lot of times they do change their marketing. They do change the um, product formula and, you know, it kind of leaves out the black women who supported them in the first place, you know, who, you know, who put them on. Um, I speak personally of Carol's daughters. I used to buy her um, products. Um, at first she was in, was it always just body, um, body care? and maybe some hair oils too. I think that's how she started out. I know she started out by making products in her home like a lot of people do. Um, and you know, she was inspired um, by watching Oprah Winfrey. I remember her name, the owner's name was Lisa Price. I remember her being on the Oprah Winfrey show and being uh, saying that she was inspired by um, Oprah's words. And um, you know, she you know really, really, really blew up, um, got some big time um, investors. I remember Will Smith, Jada Smith, I want to say Mira J. Blige at one time. Um, maybe uh, Jay-Z also were some investors and because uh, she's from New York and um, blew up her product. And it was just, it was huge. I remember even traveling to New York one time um, and I really don't even remember this trip. I went, I was there for maybe 24 hours. It was a blur. I remember I went to Macy's, I got some pizza, I looked at some clothes and I found um, Carol's daughter. I'm pretty sure she was in Brooklyn at the time. And um, it was such a beautiful store, such a really nice um, space. And even the feeling there was real laid back and chill and it smelled so good. And um, she said this one line of uh, body products was almond cookie. And oh my God, that was that was my joint, as they used to say back in the day. Not like the marijuana joint, but that was my stuff. I love that almond cookie um, line of products. And um, you could buy it online. Like I said, you could buy it, of course, in their store. I don't know if she had any independent pop-up, uh, independent stores across the United States. But I remember her first big tie-in um, big retailer was Macy's. Because um, there was a Macy's... Um, um, in the suburbs of Chicago that I used to go to and they had it. Um, they had it like in a really, really cool display. Like it had its own, you know, it was in the makeup um, section of the store, but like it, it wasn't just like thrown up on the end of somebody's like little table or whatever. It was like a really, really cool display. And so I used to go and buy my um, Carol's Daughter's products there. And then um, Carol's Daughter got bought out by, or she sold to L'Oreal. You know, I forgot how much she sold it for. I'm sure she made up, you know, a good, chunk of money from it. And the product did change. It did. Because um, at that point, she had branched off into hair care also. And I used to love that the oil, especially for the braids. Um, she had some type of, I'm pretty sure it was a rosemary based um, shampoo, just tons of, some of everything, like you name it, she had it, you know, body butter, body oil, um, shower stuff, bath stuff, all kinds of hair things. And um, like I said, she sold the company to L'Oreal, and I do believe that the product uh, changed, um, you know, and now, of course, it, it got to be sold in some everywhere. So it wasn't like all high end, you know, like or I guess mid end because is Macy's considered high end. I don't know. Um, but, you know, like then it became, you know, sold at drugstores and targets and places like that. Um, I'm pretty sure Walmart um, carries it also. But um, I don't know. The A lot of people said that the product um, formulation changed and probably because, um, they were trying to, you know, expand its appeal to not just, you know, African-American women, but to, you know, all sorts of women. Now, like I said, the argument, the other side of the argument that I see with that is it was black women that she, that put her on. I'm not saying that she only sold to black women. I'm sure that's not, you know, what she had in mind in terms of, you know, who her customers were, but the, the actuality is that her customer base, base was African-American women. Um, and so it kind of like, you know, lost its appeal to me for sure. Um, and I, I stopped buying it. Um, I just, you know, I didn't like the formula anymore and I, I don't remember my, you know, I can't find my favorite almond cookie and it's just not the same, you know, it's just, it's not the same. And that's what happens when big companies, when smaller companies expand, it's, it, it, it's par for the course. Um, I think within the black community though, that we keep seeing this happen over and over again and, you know, especially black women, when we sell, you know, I mean, sorry, we sell, um, what I'm trying to say is black women's um, dollars in terms of what we spend on beauty. Oh my God, we could probably fund a small country or maybe even a mid-sized country um, with the billions of dollars that black women spend on beauty and hair care and things like that. And so there's some money 
to be made. I mean, in in the you know in the black community, and I'm not saying that these companies need to necessarily reserve their product for just black women, but I think it's a it's a tragedy actually actually when they forget who put them on and who their base is. And this is what happened to Shea Moisture. And I was a big fan of their products too. Again, I'm a product junkie. Um, Shea Moisture was established um, by an African-American man. I can't remember his name. Um, and they had products galore um, all over the place, um, different lines, you name it, um, dry skin, um, you know, aging skin, young skin. They had um, products for kids. And they were all over the place. And then they sold to Unilever and definitely some of their um, product formulations changed. But what really um, drew the ire of African-American women is when their marketing absolutely and holistically changed. The one um, ad that I saw um, that that drew a lot of um, um, ire was um, one of the women that was in the ad would look to be I, she looked white. She could have been mixed race, but she definitely did not have. And I kind of hate the type, the hair typing in the black community too. That's a whole nother podcast. But she, she had, let's say, loose curls. Definitely um, loose curls, and she looked to be, you know, biracial at best, white also. And it was like, and nobody in that that particular ad when they, you know, um, sold to Unilever and they were rebranding, I guess, or remarketing, whatever. Nobody in that ad looked like the people that had been buying that product. And it was like, whoa. Uh, Let's tap on the brakes or shouldn't tap the brakes, right? Just, you know, firmly press the brakes. Like, what, what what happened here? So it was a whole bunch of Black folk that bought your product, but now that you're marketing, you can't include those same Black people in your marketing. And see, that's that's where Black women get mad. And I think rightfully so, because what is that all about? It's not the folk that put you on. But again, they had sold the company. The guy had sold the company. And so Unilever will do what it will. I had seen this article. Maybe you've seen it too. It's a couple of um, articles Um in a lot of spaces online, like who are these um, hair care companies and are they black owned? Because um, a lot of them are um, marketing towards black women. This one company called Cantu, I'd seen them. People talk about their um, leave-in conditioner or their um, co-wash. That's really what that is. Um, it, well, it's leave-in conditioner that you just wash out. But anyway, um, I had been talking about their products for a while and I use Cantu products too for a while, but I don't think they were ever black owned, even though their labeling, their packaging, and definitely their marketing. If you go to their Cantu website, almost everybody on that uh, website, everybody that's um, in the, in that advertising on their website, everybody did black. Um, and even the packaging kind of looks like, um, you know, like some African colors or blocking or, you know, um, color blocking or whatever like that, but I don't think they've ever been black owned. And I say that only because after just doing some light research online, I can't figure out who the owner is. Now I know it's it's owned by a bigger subsidiary now, right? Or it's a, a bigger company. And so they're probably a subsidiary of that company, but the original owner, I don't see any, any information about him. And typically black owned companies will be the first ones to tell you we black owned, you know, because they want that black dollar. Because People, black folk gonna spend money to look good and smell good. It's just something that they do. I mean, but anyway, like I said, I, I see the argument on both sides. I see both sides of the argument here. And I think there's something to be said for companies that, I hate to use that term, sell out, because I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to raise, you know, money for themselves and, you know, um, and do what they can, you know, to, you know, establish their own, you know, generational wealth for their families. And, you know, like the um, Rodriguez's are staying on with uh, Procter & Gamble and they're going to continue to operate their company. So it's not like they're selling out and then just moving on. Um, you know, they're. Um, I think um, Monique has said that she's going to, you know, th that the aim of the company is to continue to develop products, you know, um, you know, and, 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 you know, steer the direction of the company from within, um, the smaller company, you know, as a subsidiary of Procter and Gamble. But all I'm saying is, I get it. You know, it does feel like a little bit of a sellout. You know, we 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 meaning black people, we clamor about it. You know, word of mouth. Um, what are you using in your hair? Are you like this? Whatever, voodoo, blah blah blah. And then you know, and then it 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 changes and it's something different. Oh, what's the name of that other company? Miss Jessie's daughter. It, it was no, that's Carol's daughter. Miss Jessie's. I'm conflating the two, um, mixing them up. Miss Jessie's was another like word of mouth product that you could only buy online. And they were kind of pricey when they first came out. It was two sisters um, who were biracial. Um, their mom was Asian and their dad was black, I think. And um, they talked about like their their story is that, you know, it was kind of difficult to do their hair because of all of the different um, textures um, in their hair. And so um, they came up with products you know, for curly haired women. And so I love them. It's like I said, when I was wearing my hair um, before I locked it, 
Um, and I was wearing my hair curly sometimes, Afro sometimes, but I love their products, Miss Jessie's. Um, they, um, yeah, and they were, like I said, they were very pricey. You can only buy them online. And then um, they turned up in Target in different places like that. Um, and this is kind of a tragic story too, because one of the sisters, um, the two sisters that own the the line, um, she committed suicide. Um, and like I said, I still see their products, but not a lot of hype behind them anymore. And again, um, formulations change. And so then they came out with uh, curly hair products for women who have looser curls. You know what that means, right? And that's not to say that some Black women don't have multiple um, textures in their hair. Um, I am one of those people. And my daughter is too. You know, you just, it's not just a full head of, you know, what they say, 4C in the hair typing in the Black community. 4C is supposed to be like the curliest texture of hair. And the 1A is like the weight is like a wavy uh, texture. But yeah, they came out with some uh, products for women that have, you know, less uh, curly, more wavy hair. And I get it. You know, th that that can be black, white, orange, speckled, spotted, whoever, you know, curly haired women um, like their hair care products, you know, because for a long time, a lot of I'm sure uh, white women, too, kind of uh, find it difficult to find products for um, curly haired, um, you know, women, because a lot of women were, you know, getting. What what are those? Are they perms that make? Is it perms that make white women's hair curly? I think it is. So they put the rods in there and they set the hair um, using a chemical to do so. But like for naturally curly haired women, I don't know. Um, I've seen a lot of people like in cartoons and things like that lament, you know, their curly curly red hair because it gets frizzy and things like that. So that might mean that there's like a um, you know a vacuum there for products for white women who have curly or wavy hair too. So you know if they can benefit from it, cool. But I think the problem becomes again if this pro product is initially marketed and hyped up and bought by black women, and then when it you know expands, it kind of forgets its base. You know it makes black women a little bit salty. I get that. I feel it. All right. Um, switching gears one more time. So right before I get to my last topic, which is appropriately Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, speaking of selling, I don't want you to sell out. I did kind of, sort of. But this one's a little bit more complex, I think. Do you remember that family? Um, this happened like around July of last year. It was a Black family. Um, they had finally gotten their beachfront property back from uh, Los Angeles. Was it Los Angeles? Yeah, Los Angeles County. Um, so the family's last name was Bruce, um, and it was the area, um, uh, it was known as Bruce's Beach, and it's a portion of what is now known as Manhattan Beach um, had been taken from the family um, uh, back over a century ago, I suppose. Um, and it was taken like an eminent domain, I, um, I think is what had happened. They had suffered racist um, harassment from white neighbors, and in um, the 1920s, the Manhattan Beach City Council condemned the property and took it through eminent domain. The city did nothing with the property and it was transferred to the state of California and then to Los Angeles. The county built its lifeguard training headquarters on the uh, island, which includes a small parking lot. And then um, finally, the um, family uh, in a big ceremony last year, last summer, I remember, um, had gotten the property back um, from uh, Los Angeles County, but they are now selling um, the property back to Los Angeles County um, for about $20 million. And again, this came out recently too, like in the last week or so. And I saw on social media and in the news too, a lot of people like, see, this is what's wrong with black folk. As soon as they get something, they sell it and woody woo, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out um, that um the Bruce family has decided to do this because what they wanted to do with the property um, uh, was not going to be allowed. So current zoning regulations would have prevented them. I'm reading this from, um, is this CBS online? Current zoning regulations would prevent them from developing it in an economically beneficial manner. So they are um, selling it back to LA County for $20 million. Um, so the transfer agreement that was completed last June called for the property be to be leased back to the county for 24 months with an annual rent of $413,000 plus all operation and maintenance costs and a possible sale back to the county again for nearly $20 million. That was part of the agreement um, last year. They had, like I said, they had given the deed to the prop of the property back to the family in a big ceremony where the um, L.A. lifeguard um, training center was. That was um, towards the end of uh, 
July last summer. But yeah, so now they're selling it back. But again, what what appears to be the motivation here is that they wouldn't be able to do what they wanted to do with the property because of current current zoning regulations. So it seems like the fix was in, even though they were getting their property back, the powers that be already knew that they wouldn't be able to do, like to develop it the way that they wanted to develop it to help them make money. So instead of going through all of that uh, red tape in terms of trying to get the zoning um, changed, the zoning regulations changed, they, the family just decided, you know what, we'll just take the money and you know try to build some generational wealth in another way from that. So it's kind of an unfortunate situation, I suppose, um, for people who were looking to them to, you know, like develop this property and, you know, it's beachfront property in, you know, Southern California. So it's, you know, you know, all of us that don't live there think it's like, you know, worth billions, you know, of course we don't know. Um, but, you know, everybody else is like, oh my God, they could have done so much and it's worth so much money. It's like, yeah, but they probably, or apparently don't have the wherewithal to impact, you know, the zoning regulations or get those changed so that they can make the changes that they want to make um, with regard to the property. Now, it remains to be seen if, you know, if LA County is going to do something else with that property besides whatever, um, having that lifeguard training facility on it and parking lots and whatever else. Now, if somebody else comes and acquires it and then they change it to something else, then we'll know for sure, for sure that, um, you know, this whole plan was, um, could, could have been, uh, or appeared to have been disingenuous in the first place. But again, that remains to be seen. So, whoop, there it is. It's just another story about Black people and property and money and bags. But anyway, as I previously stated, I wanted to wrap up um, today's episode um, with a tribute to the legacy, the life, the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Of course, today is his day. Um, You know, back in the day, um, I think I... I think I was still teaching. I had or had just started teaching. They used to say, you know, a day on, not a day off. So they wanted people to, um, you know, dedicate this day to as a day of service, you know, in their communities and in their neighborhoods and things like that. So not a day of rest um, necessarily, but a day, you know, to do some work. But um, in this new, there's a newer um, school of thought out there um, with regard to, um, you know, reserving your rest, and especially for Black people, um, you know, rest is as resistance or rest is resistance. I got to read the book. I think my husband has it at his job. He's supposed to bring it home for me. But anyway, I digress. Hey, if you listen to this podcast, can you bring that book home for me? Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so I am, I'm, I guess I'm doing a little work. I'm doing my podcast, um, but I am a little bit later on going to um, do some indulge. And I don't even want to use that word indulge. I'm going to engage because to indulge means that, you know, I'm taking um, something luxurious, like there's something, you know, extra about it, but I'm just going to engage because it's, you know, self-care is important. It should be an important facet and a prioritized facet of life. So later on, I'm going to engage in some self-care and relax on this, um, uh, MLK day. Um, there's a Instagram account that I follow, a girl has no president and, um, always some interesting posts there. Always, 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 if you're looking for something new, um, uh, oftentimes political, but I mean, um, she doesn't both sides the issue. And, and I appreciate that because sometimes there, there is no both sides to the issue. It's just wrong. Like one side is wrong and one side is right. And why do we need to deal with the, were they wrong? Because, you know, that's what that former president used to do. You know, well, there's some good people on both sides. Mm, is there, is a good racist and oxymoron? Anyway, I digress. Uh, so anyway, um, she had posted um, earlier on her um, Instagram page, you know, instead of this day being a day about people just posting like these little innocuous quotes from Dr. King, like a lot of politicians tend to do, you know, they call um, the the quotes and they use the ones that seem, you know, you know, that I have a dream, you know, that this country will one day, you know, uh, what is it that my four little children will not be judged? Um, you know, we'll live in a world, I'm conflating all of the quotes right now, but you know, the one that they like to, um, that people won't be judged by the color of their skin, my four little children, you know, will grow up in a world they not will they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. You know, they use that one a lot, but they don't talk about the beginning of the I Have a Dream speech. And so the person that runs that Instagram account, a girl has no president, she was challenging people, you know, to read the entirety of the I Have a Dream speech, you know, that was delivered at the March on Washington, August 28th, 1963. I'm hoping I got that date right off the top of my head. I didn't look that one up, y'all. It's me trying to pull on my old social studies teacher hat. Um, also to read his letter from a Birmingham jail. I remember I taught that um, 
years ago when I, I was teaching in Chicago. And it's, it's a tough letter to get through. I mean, just even for an adult, I think it's, it's tough text to get through, but it is so good. Um, uh, Dr. King um, taking to task the people who had been criticizing him, members of the clergy um, who had been criticizing him, calling him an outsider. What was, you know, an agitator? What was he doing in Birmingham? And I think, um, I don't know how he would, obviously, I don't know how he would like to be remembered. Um, the people that would know that would, you know, be his family. His children were, his his children who are adults, older adults now, um, they were very young, you know, at the time of his death. His wife is also deceased. So the people who know him best, you know, or knew him best, they probably have a better inkling and idea of how he would like to be remembered. Um, but I think the bottom line here uh, for me and for educators, I think, and just for regular folk too, you don't have to be an educator to you know know about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think it's just accuracy. Um, you know, at the time of his death, at the time, at the height of the civil rights movement, a lot of people were angry with him. Um, and I'm not talking about just white folk, obviously, um, but a lot of black people too. They were, you know, angry because he was um, challenging the status quo and felt like he would make things worse for them um, in some of their communities rather than, you know, make things better in the long run. Um, you know, he often talked about, you know, the fact that it wasn't, you know, it's not, and it, I think that's in the um, letter from a Birmingham jail. It's not the, you know, the KKK necessarily that we're so afraid of. It's the white moderates. It's their, it's their silence. You know, we, of course, you know, we hear the words of our enemies. I'm paraphrasing here, but what we're going to remember the most is, is a, a King quote is the silence um, from our so-called friends. Um, and, and that's, of course, what um, had uh, enabled, you know, racism and segregation for so many years. Of course, there was this, um, you know, white hate and overt white hate by, you know, white supremacist groups and, um, uh, you know, uh, hardline um, right wing groups and things like that. But it was, you know, people who were, you know, constantly saying, just wait, just wait. Um, you know, that's, how long should we wait? You know, how long, you know, will injustice stand? How long? Not long, because no lie can last forever. Um, so I wanted to share just a couple of quotes here, um, a couple of passages. So like, I know you can find these um, read in his voice and, um, you know, uh, the speeches, the excerpts of these speeches um, online. I'm looking at um, NPR right now. Um, they've got uh, the transcript of his um, I Have a Dream speech in its entirety on NPR.org. Um, the beginning of the speech is um, where um, Dr. King kind of takes, um, not kind of, but takes America to task. And this is the part that is not often quoted. You know, people like to get to the the end where he talks about his dream, where Mahalia Jackson um, uh, told him, tell him about the dream, Martin. Um, and, um, you know, he talks about, I have a, he says, I have a dream that every day, that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. Um, that's from Isaiah. Um, uh, America is a great nation. If America is to be a great nation, this must become true. Um, like those, you know, those parts at the end, again, you know, we talked about his four children, um, you know, growing up in a world where they not be judged by the color of their skin. Um, my four little children will one day live in a nation where they're not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Um, I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with his vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition nullification, one day right down in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls um, will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. So people quote the black girls and black boys joining hands with white boys and white girls, but they forget the part right above that where he's talking about the governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. You know, with its vicious racist. It's like, how do you how do you skip that whole paragraph right there, y'all? How y'all do that? But we know why. People do that for convenience and to reposition and reframe and rebox. And we talked about we talked about marketing earlier um, on the podcast and remarket and rebrand Dr. King as this pacifist, right? You know, this nonviolent preacher and speech uh, maker. Um, and that all that's all he did. And that in those speeches, you know, it was all about this dream. And, you know, hopefully we'll all sing together, you know, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. But that's not who he was. A lot of people viewed him as a revolutionary, um, you know, as an agitator, which he was for real, though. Um, so 100 years later, the Negro is still not free. This is at the top of his speech. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, 
The Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. Now, now he was preaching right there, but the, y'all not going to hear this one online. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to, capital to cash a check. And then a little bit later, he says, it is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. Preach, Dr. King. And again, that's not the parts that you're going to see quoted online today. Um, especially by a lot of uh, politicians who, you know, want to, you know, walk the middle line and things like that. And, you know, want to repackage Dr. King and rebrand him, you know, as an uh, just, you know, this nonviolent pacifist. Now, he did. He did advocate for nonviolence, for sure. That was his method. That was the, the method to his madness, if you will. But it wasn't from a position of, you know, hands out, hat in hand, you know, yes sir, no sir. No, it's like, no, this is what America owes us. And it has not kept its promises to its black citizens. There was another piece, um, a quote that I saw earlier um, on Instagram. Um, he was being interviewed. Um, I'll, I'll play this one for you. In every other group that came as an immigrant, somehow, not easily, but somehow got around it. Is it just the fact that Negroes are black? White America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negroes color a stigma. America freed the slaves in 19, I mean, 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate. And therefore, it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, oh, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. Yeah, that's that's the legacy. That's the legacy of one Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, may he rest in peace and power and all of the things that we attribute to the dead, you know, as they are resting. Um, yeah. And I'm going to go off myself and have a little bit of day of rest as I continue to reflect um, on, uh, you know, how far we've actually come. Uh, hook up with me on uh, social media. I'm Donna Gay Tyler on um, Instagram and Facebook. I that's it. I need to go to TikTok, but I feel like I'm too old for TikTok. I'm man. plus isn't China watching anyway. Have a good MLK Day, friends. I will talk to you again next week. And whatever you do, stay classy. Um, keep hope alive. No, that's um, Jesse Jackson. Whatever you do, stay classy. Keep dreaming. Keep resting. And thanks for stopping by. <laughs>